You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, uh, my guest co-host, Roy Ho. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Roy uh, is filling in for Paul this week because he would much rather be in Disneyland than here at the office toiling away with uh, all of us. <laughs> Who wouldn't be? Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. So uh, that's good because there's actually um, a lot of driving law related issues that uh, Roy can chime in on this week with the special knowledge that he has. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk to you, Roy, about this insane case out of Georgia where a man got a $1.4 million speeding ticket. Yeah, I read about that. It's quite, quite, quite crazy. Yeah, shocking. Yeah. So uh, this is Connor Cato. Uh, He was in Savannah, Georgia. He was doing 90 in a 55 zone, 90 miles an hour in a 55 mile per hour zone. And Georgia has this, this special law. So if you're going at least 35 miles per hour over the speed limit, you're characterized as, as something called a super speeder. Um, And if you are a super speeder, rather than getting like just a regular old traffic ticket that you can pay or you can contest, you're forced to go to court. And the fine can be under Georgia's legislation up to $1,000. That's the maximum fine. Um, But he got the fine on the ticket as $1.4 million, which is crazy. Now, the reason that he got this ticket for uh, $1.4 million was because Georgia is using a computer system that doesn't compute the fine because the fine is set by the court. And so it uses an amount of like $9,999,999 as a placeholder. But then when it gets put into the system, it computes a fine that, you know, factoring in state mandated costs, which I guess are like percentages of the fine, it actually computes it to be a specific amount that is way more than the cost of the ticket. So I think that's a real, uh, a real issue. Roy, what do you think? Yeah, I, I read up on this and uh, this even more crazy is, you know, Mr. Cato, like most of us would assume, would think it's an error, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, he calls a typo or some kind of a computer glitch or something like that. So he calls the courthouse asking to confirm that this can't be right. I can't owe $1.4 million fine. The courthouse responded with, well, either you pay the fine or you come to court. But you have to pay what's on the ticket, which is the crazier part because, you know, it's bewildering. Um, I think any reasonable person would, you know, would not even agree to this amount. Right. No, definitely not. Um, but, you know, there's been all this talk lately, uh, not not just in Canada, but around North America about tying speeding fines to 
like a person's income or to the type of car that they have. It's like a percentage of the value of the car or things like that. And so I don't think that it would be unreasonable now for a person looking at a $1.4 million ticket. I mean, assuming that they're a well-off person um, to think maybe they do have to pay $1.4 million. And you have to wonder, like, at what point does the system accept not just responsibility, but also liability? If it collects that fine when the maximum under the law is $1,000 and where its its agents sort of cause people to provide um, uh, or cause people to pay the fines by providing unreliable information. Yes, the, the question comes to mind for me is, you know, when did they implement the system? Because, you know, to me, if they, um, if this has been used for a while, then they should have been, I, I, I no doubt would think that Mr. Cotto is not the first person to call the courthouse saying, you know, I have this ridiculous amount, fine amount, can't be right. You know, if that is the case, they've used the system for a while, and I got to say, yeah, there could be potential negligence uh, from the court, right, or the state. Because, you know, it, it's uh, there's something called a, in Canada, the negligent um, uh, infliction of emotional distress. So, you know, that can happen when um, people do things recklessly, causing people to suffer uh, severe emotional trauma, right? Or, or anxiety or panic attacks or whatever. And you can claim damages for something like that. And, you know, in some extreme cases, I can see some people even doing something very drastic because they see this bill and maybe they're not sophisticated. And they go, oh my God, I owe this much. I'm indebted of 1.4 million. You know, and they do something drastic, right? You yeah, know, what if they like so certainly there could be, Yeah, I don't want to say it, but <laughs> possibly, right? Like if they were already in debt, for example, uh, and then they see this, yeah, it might push them over the edge, right? But yeah, certainly if they if this system's been around for a while and they're aware that this glitch, if you want to call it that, um uh is doing this, right? Um, and they don't change it, you know, it's very reasonable for people to um be shocked by this bill. Yeah. I, 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 but I wonder then, like, how do you get around that rule? And here, I guess this is where your expertise comes in as uh, in your time as like a civil litigator. How do you get around the rule that, um, you know, tribunals and, and courts have like an immunity from a lawsuit? Uh, so it's um, with the with government or public bodies, um, they do have built-in typically statutory immunities, but they're not also, they're, they're, that doesn't mean that they are completely immune from liability regardless. There are uh, things like gross negligence or um, things where if there was a, <clears throat> uh, whether there's a system in place, and if they didn't have a system in place, then they could be found negligent, but if they had a system in place and they followed it and something bad happened, or even the person executing the system was negligent, the public body won't be found negligent. So there are like, I don't know, loopholes, but it's not a complete, you know, shield. It's not an absolute impenetrable immunity. Okay. Yeah, there are things that they can do causing them to have liability attached. And it comes down to basically, you know, common sense knowledge, right? Like, Like, you know, would a reasonable person in their shoes would have done the same thing, right? Right. All right. The second thing, now that we're on to your civil, your civil lit knowledge, 
did you see the Richmond RCMP's like ridiculous video that they released this year? I did. I did. A lot of backlash from that, I understand too. A lot of backlash from it. So for those who haven't seen it, this video is is the uh, Richmond RCMP trying to educate the public about pedestrian safety. It was incredibly unfortunately timed because it was released the same day there was a fatal pedestrian collision in Richmond. Um, and the video sort of targets uh, this woman who is depicting the, civil, the um, pedestrian. She uh, puts on a black hoodie, puts her hoodie up over her head, and starts uh, out on her walk. Um, she goes to a marked crosswalk. She presses the flashing light button to trigger the warning lights at the crosswalk. She puts her AirPods in both ears and begins to cross. So far, sounds perfectly reasonable and lawful, other than, you know, maybe she's not being as careful as she should be. And a then they depict this driver who comes down the road and he like careens towards her at what is what is meant to depict a high rate of speed. Um, and and he picks up his cell phone and starts checking his messages right as he's approaching the crosswalk and only slams on his brakes to avoid hitting her seconds before a collision. And then the caption comes up, pedestrian safety is a two way street. I don't know, what was your reaction on seeing it? Yeah, uh, I, I think it was a, a real misstep by the RCMP. I think they were giving mixed messages. Um, the, the backlash surrounded the fact that uh, most people online, it went viral apparently, uh, that the RCMP was victim blaming, which is here the pedestrian, because mm -hmm. the pedestrian had the right way, wasn't doing anything wrong. Uh, there's nothing wrong with her crossing in a park crosswalk. She can listen to music. You know, she can put on her hoodie if she wants to, etc. And everybody online saying, you know, it's the driver that's the person who's doing illegal things. And therefore, you know, you shouldn't be blaming the uh, victim here, the potential victim, the pedestrian. Where I think the police did the, their misstep was that they were mixing two different messages together. Because yeah. what they were trying to do was, you know... Um, promote road safety, and it's not specific to drivers. Uh, I think they were also trying to tell people, you know, pedestrians that use the road, you know, another message, maybe a cyclist or whatever it may be. But they put two messages into one. See, I feel like if they separated two different advertisements, one for a pedestrian, one for the road user, I don't think this would have happened, right? Yeah, probably not. Um, and, and you know, the messaging, I think the messaging about the pedestrian is not wrong. Like they weren't wrong. You shouldn't have headphones in so you can't hear traffic. You should make eye contact with the driver before crossing, right. even though you're, you, you've got the right of way. You shouldn't dress in all black because it makes you hard to see. But like you can tell that story without using a driver who's violating like at least three separate motor vehicle act laws. Right, that, that's where the focus got shifted to because everybody was uh, harping on the idea that the pedestrian wasn't doing anything wrong. And, you know, if they separated the messages, it would be much better. Like, you know, be vigilant as a pedestrian or whatever it may be, uh, you know, walking around public outside or what have you. Right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, from like the civil litigation perspective, I mean, obviously I know that like, fault determinations are are much more different now with our 
age of no fault and uh, you're going to get compensation either way. But under the old system or assuming that the pedestrian had the right to sue and the driver was convicted of a criminal offense in a in a collision scenario. Um, what does what role does the pedestrian like not wearing reflective clothing, not making eye contact with the driver, having their headphones in? What role does that um, play in assessing how much money the driver might have to pay? Under the old system? Under the old system, or if you get the right to sue because of a, like a criminal. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's a, there's that, yeah. In the new system, if you get convicted of the uh, A-board vehicle uh, offense, driving offense, then yeah, you can sue. You're back to the old system. There's also compensation, though. It's not, the new system doesn't provide uh Compensation per se, it provides benefits, uh, but there is a type of compensation, monetary compensation as well for permanent impairment injuries. So these are very catastrophic ones. They are capped or uh, they meet charted. So they, they give a certain amount for certain types of injuries. It could go up to about 264000 I believe. So these both systems, yeah, they would look at liability. And for something like this, um, the, the 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 liability portion of it, or the legal the legal analysis of the liability portion, it still applies the same under both systems, which is for the pedestrian, contributory negligence. Uh, it could be said that this person contributed to their injuries, whether whether it's under the old system or a catastrophic one under the new system. They contributed to it because uh, they were not careful uh, when they were crossing the crosswalk, right? And um, your obligation to be careful is isn't. It isn't just like follow the law. It's actually like protect yourself. Yes, that's right. Because it's um, <clears throat> that's what negligence law is about. It's about uh, taking care, right? But what would a prudent, reasonable person do uh, in, in a similar circumstance, right? Would they uh, hop on uh, headphones uh, crossing a crosswalk, you know, um, at night and wear dark clothing? Maybe a person would. In this uh, commercial video, uh, it was daylight, so I don't think that would play in. But I can envision um, a, a situation where, <clears throat> for example, exactly the same video, and we have these in the lower mainland, they have these uh, certain intersections, we have these signs that say eye collision intersection signs. I don't know if you've ever seen them, by the way. Yes, I have. Where, yeah, they're posted through certain intersections where essentially where ISPs is recognized, there's tons of accidents. If such a sign existed, all else being equal in this video, I, I easily could find that somebody claimed that this pedestrian did contribute to their negligence because having this big posted sign boarded there, and despite knowing that, you throw in your headphones, put your hood on, and cross without looking both ways. You know, she, she pushed the button, the lights are blinking, but she didn't even look, right? Just started going. It easily could be said that she contributed to her injuries. Yes. Um, okay. Well, that's good to know. And now with that civil litigation information in mind, we should pause here to take a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice. Kraken! Eric
Welcome to the McGracken moment. Let's talk about rear-end crashes. So you're in a vehicle and you get rear-ended. That other driver is going to be at fault 100% of the time, right? Well, no, not really. The law is more nuanced than that, despite what ICBC likes to say. So let's talk about this. A recent case called Virk and Helm Northover was just published by the BC Supreme Court, and it sheds some light on this. Here's what happened. A cyclist was traveling in a protected bike lane. Behind the cyclist were two vehicles. The cyclist signaled that they were going to turn left in front of those vehicles and then carried on for a little bit, then abruptly made the left-hand turn. The motorist behind the cyclist thought she could pass, didn't really put two and two together, and realized at the last second that the cyclist was turning and slammed on her brakes. In an unfortunate set of facts, the motorist behind her wasn't paying attention at that crucial moment, and when the brakes were suddenly put on, all of a sudden a crash happened. So the rear motorist rear-ended the front motorist, and the front motorist slammed on their brakes because of the cyclist's abrupt left-hand turn. Now, a lawsuit started, and everybody pointed fingers at everybody. And when all the dust settled, the court said, everybody's to blame. The cyclist was at fault for the abrupt left-hand turn. The front motorist was at fault for not realizing what was about to transpire and slamming on her brakes. And the rear motorist was at fault for not paying attention. And there was a split of fault. But folks, this is a good example that just because there's a rear end crash, the rear motorist isn't always at fault and not always 100% at fault. The law is pretty nuanced. And if you're not paying attention and you're not doing the responsible thing, everybody could be to blame. Thank you, Eric, for an exciting uh, case and sort of somewhat on the topic of of sort of different liability to different types of road users. Um, That was an interesting update and uh, certainly something that cyclists should keep in mind when they are on the road. Now, Roy, you get the special privilege, because Paul's not here, of being involved in the best part of this podcast after the McGracken moment, uh, which is the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. You don't tell oh, yes, this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just pull it in back up. This one is a, a fun one. Uh, this- one is fantastic. Yeah, this this uh, this lady, uh, another U.S. case, a Florida woman, uh, got charged for driving a, a big cop car, a charger cop car. Uh, her her reason was because she she modified her charger to look like a police car. Her reason was because she fell in love with the color scheme. Absolutely mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. She, uh, yeah, so she had a Dodge Charger, much like the uh, Vancouver police drive around here with similar coloring uh, to the Vancouver police uh, Dodge Chargers. And yeah, she even lied 
when the police confronted her with the fact that she had this this car all made up to look like a like a police vehicle she was like no i i didn't you know i didn't intend to do that and then finally ultimately said oh yeah well i like the way that uh that it looks and there are pictures um of the vehicle on twitter um andy slater i don't know who that is um, posted it. Uh, the tweet says, only in Miami, a woman was arrested on Tuesday by at FHP Miami for driving a lookalike Florida Highway Patrol car on the Palmetto Expressway. And it's even got like a, sh- a like a like a badge on the door. And it says FSO guard. Um, it's got a car number on the side B3100530. Like it's gone. She's gone. It's got, a, it's got emergency lights too. Yeah, oh yeah, it had a light bar on Good. the top. Yeah, it's going above and beyond. Yeah. So there's actually like a a particular charge. She's got um, a first degree misdemeanor charge of imitation of a Florida Highway Patrol marked unit, which is crazy. Like, I have to ask the question, what happened in Florida that the legislature had to craft a specific criminal offense for impersonating a Florida Highway Patrol vehicle? Like yeah, just impersonating just... a police officer, like specifically that police force marked car. <laughs> yeah, that like it has to be highway patrol. <laughs> like yeah. in Canada, we have we have something similar, but it encompasses all you know yeah. police officers, right? Like whatever capacity department agency they are, same deal. You can pretend to be a police officer. <laughs> Ours is not so specific as like just a certain. <laughs> Uh, unit. Yeah. So uh, I love it. Uh, don't if you if you are out there, please don't decorate your car up to look like a police car. Um, if you think it's going to keep you from getting pulled over, it's not. It's going to get you. Over. <laughs> it's going to get you pulled over. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to face a lot more consequences than whatever traffic ticket you're trying to get out of by by doing up your car like a police car. If you want to drive a police car, become a police officer. um well that's our podcast thank you so much roy for joining us and lending your insight and wisdom to the driving law podcast if you need to reach us about a driving law related issue you can find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of driving law thanks for having me